0: It's good to be here today. Um, If you want to turn to John chapter 11, is where we'll be. And so as as you're turning there, I want you to think about this topic that we face on a daily basis. Every one of us. It's waiting. Now, it might be even uncomfortable for some of you to even hear that, waiting, because it's just hard. You're in that place where you're waiting for something to happen. Maybe if you're honest, you had to wait for someone this morning to get ready for church. I think it's something that human beings—we're just not good at. It's something that we just struggle with. We're waiting. We don't know what's next. We don't know what's going to happen. And so let let me just give one example of how waiting is difficult for all of us. And um, so it's something that everybody has in your house. It's the microwave. Now, I know you weren't expecting the microwave to show up so early in the sermon, but here we go. So, the whole premise of a microwave is to get food quickly, right? How many of you have gotten home from work or gotten home from something and you're just so hungry? You got nothing to cook in the fridge. You can't wait for food. And you pop something in the microwave and you just wait 30 seconds and it's like an eternity. So long is this 30 seconds. You just want your delicious food, whatever it is. And if you're like me, you have like an internal countdown when it goes down to like 3, two, 1, and you get your food and you're all pumped and excited. But honestly, like, the 30 seconds it takes for the food to get ready in the microwave is hard. It's hard for us to wait even such a little, short amount of time. And so... Oftentimes, like, you know, microwaves, are, it's, that's easy waiting. A lot of times, waiting is so much more difficult than that. You know, we'll wait to hear back from a job prospect. We'll wait to hear back about the health of a loved one. We wait for our kids to listen to us. You know, we wait to hear on so many different things. You know, we wait to get into that next phase of life. You know, when I was in, in middle school, I just wanted to be in high school. Then when I was in high school, I just wanted to be in college. When I was in college, I just wanted to get out of college. And for wh- whatever it is for you, you just want to own that house. You just want your kids to be out of school, out of the house. You just want to retire. We wait in so many ways, and it's so hard. And I think we need a theology of waiting. And that's what we'll see in this morning as we look at John 11 verses 1 through 16. We'll see how Jesus is calling us to wait. And so as we read, I just want you to notice just some of the concepts that we're going to cover. It's glory, love, and belief. So let's read John 1, John 11, verses 1 through 16. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your word. We thank you that it is true and it is meaningful to all of us. It inspires our life, it gives us hope. Lord, I pray during this time that you would help us to know you more that we would see your glory, that we would see your love that and that would cause us to believe. Lord, we long to seek your face. Lord, we need your presence here. I pray that you would give our minds understanding and our hearts open to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would become great in this place. Glorify your name. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. So before we start breaking out this passage, I'll just give a short, quick summary. I just want to like, show that like, Jesus is approached by Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, one of their servants. He's approached by one of their servants who tells them that Lazarus is sick. And so, naturally, you'd think, if you're familiar with some of the Gospels, Jesus previously has been able to speak a word, and people are healed. He's also been able to to go and just heal people immediately. And so what happens here is very interesting, because upon hearing that Lazarus is sick, he stays where he is. He doesn't go immediately. And it's a hundred-mile journey to where Lazarus is. You would think that he would go if he was going to heal him. And so what's going on here is that Jesus stayed where he was because he loves Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So it was love that caused Jesus to wait and let Lazarus die. So this is the kind of love that we can't understand. We can't even comprehend. And so this morning, we're going to focus on three big concepts. The first one is glory. The second one is love. And the third one is belief. And so the main idea, what I want you to take away from this, is those who are loved by Jesus will wait for the glory of God to be revealed by believing in Jesus. And so as we see the setting of what's going on here, we, we can see in chapter 10, if you want to go back up in uh, verse 38. Uh, verse, actually, verse 39. They try to seize him, but he escapes their grasp. If you go back even further, if you go to verse 31, the Jews picked up stones to try and kill him because he claimed that he and the Father were one. And so the setting of of what's going on in Jerusalem around the time of Jesus' ministry is very hostile. They're hostile to what he's saying. They don't believe in what he's saying. And so they travel. they, They travel across the Jordan and go to Judea. And so... From there, Mary and Martha send word that their brother Lazarus is sick. They send a servant there. And so this is the setting that we have where Jesus will talk about what's going on in, in this passage and in, in what's about to take place. So as we look at verses 1 through 3, we can see that it's really interesting, the initial part. Let's, let's read verse 2. It says, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And so this, this verse sort of seems out of place, especially when you keep reading in the Gospel of John that this event happens in chapter 12. So what is John trying to say here? Well, I think John is, is telling us that this is a close relationship that Mary and Martha and Lazarus have with Jesus. They're followers of Jesus. They believe in Jesus. So they send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. And so it shows that it's not a common friend. It's not just an ordinary acquaintance. These are people that Jesus knows and cares for and loves. And so what's Jesus' response to their request? Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4, it says, When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it, So this is the first theological concept, is glory. And so now we'll look, we'll look at this, this concept of what's going on here. So the moment that Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, he says, this sickness is not going to end in death. And in that time, when sickness happened, it often ended in death because of the medical practices were not of like this age. But it often ended in death. And so when Jesus hears, he says, it's not going to end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son would be glorified. So immediately, he hears what's happening. He connects the sickness with God's glory. And as we see here, we can see that the sickness of Lazarus is about God's glory. Jesus is, re- Jesus is going to rescue Lazarus for God's glory. And so in this passage, we see that this is the case, that this illness is for God's glory. And as we look, let's look, back, look, look back down in verse 14, so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So the sickness will not end in death, but then Jesus says it's gonna end, it does end in death. So what is, what's going on here? How can, how can this happen? And so as you look back in verse 4, it's for God's glory. It's for God's glory that this sickness is happening. So it begs the question, how can God be glorified in death? How can God be glorified when bad things happen? Because death is one of the worst things that humanity faces. And what this verse is saying is that God is glorified even in death. And so how can that be? I mean, you might be sitting there wondering, what about this bad thing that happened to me? This suffering that I went through. I was abused. I just suffered the death of a loved one. I lost my job. I'm in this addiction. Where is God in all of this? Where is he? What's going on? And let me give you the answer. He's right there with you, glorifying his name, bringing glory to himself. God is glorified in all things. And this is hard for us to understand. And so how does God bring glory to his name through what you're going through? It happens in the church. You're going through that that thing in your life so that you can minister to others. This is why church fellowship is so key, so essential But another thing that we need to understand is is glory, this concept of glory. Because it's so easy to become numb to theological words that we hear oftentimes in church. So what is glory? Well, in the New Testament, the Greek word is doxa. And what that means, it speaks of worth and dignity and value and weight. In the Hebrew, the word is kabod, and it speaks of weight. That God is like the weighty one. He's the heavy one. And this word glory is most often applied to God. And glory is about radiance and splendor. But glory isn't just an attribute. It it exists to be seen and displayed and recognized. It's all about reputation, esteem, standing, and honor. And at its core, glory is an inherent value that's recognizable for others. It draws attention. It's like a magnet. And this is our God. He's glorious. And so the way that I picture it, because glory attracts us. You're attracted to this glory. It's, if, you, if you can visualize with me, it's like a giant diamond in a stream. And what happens there is, you're familiar with a stream, the water runs right through it. When there's a giant diamond or a giant rock there, The the stream is, is redirected around the rock because it's weighty, it's heavy, it's more glorious than the water. So the way I picture God's glory is like a diamond in the middle of a stream. And you see its beauty, you see its splendor, you see its majesty. And then you realize that it's heavy, it's weighty, it's glorious. And so in a similar way, but so much greater, God is glorious. And you see this in his creation I mean, was just, I was just overhearing a friend talk about his trip to Alaska. He's saying, he's like, one view got better than, the, better than the next. We see his glory in creation. Psalm 19:1, it says, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. God is glorious in his creation. And the Bible itself reveals that, yes, God is glorious in his creation, but God is glorious in himself. In who he is, he's glorious. And it's this glorious God who created the universe to display his glory to us as human beings so that we could see his worth, so that we could see his value. And so this is where this whole concept gets even more huge, that we as human beings have been created by God to understand his glory and to glorify him in all that we do. We have the capability and the, the, the ability to make sense of God's glory. And rejoice over his incredible worth. And this is what it means to glorify God. Not that we can make him any more glorious, but that we acknowledge and recognize the glory that radiates from him. This is who he is. He's glorious. And we radiate, we, we see this glory that radiates from him, we value it, we recognize it, and we give him praise, do his name, because he's glorious. This is why we're created. This is why all human beings were created. The Westminster Confession puts it well. It says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is for all human beings. This is why we evangelize. Because God is glorious and he's created all of humanity to see his glory, to see his value, to see his greatness. And so this glory grabs us. We're attracted to it. How many of you the past couple weeks were watching the Olympics? I was watching the Olympics and seeing like, these tiny little girls just like, bouncing up in the air and flipping and just doing incredible things. Watching the swimmers like, swim in the pool. Like, when I get in the pool, I just sink. It was inc- like, it's incredible to see like, these swimmers just going so fast. And it's like, man, this is glory. Like, I, I just wanted to keep watching. I just wanted to keep seeing this glory in, the, in these humans. But even more so, we are, we're drawn to the glory that comes from God. The problem is, human beings have a tendency to seek glory in wrong places where it won't satisfy. That's called sin. You know, I work with teenagers, so they look for glory in Facebook and video games, technology, technology. And appearances. You know, maybe middle-aged people look for glory in somehow trying to recapture youth. You know, maybe women look for glory in in a clean house. Maybe men look for glory alone on their computer at night. The problem is we look for glory in the wrong places. We can look for glory in clothes and cars and vacations and food. And the human pursuit of glory is insatiable, and it never satisfies. It never does. Until we realize that this glory that we're seeking, that we're looking for, it comes in a person. So let's look at John eleven four again. Jesus talks about the sickness that will not end in death, and he says, no, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So our glory-seeking culminates in Jesus Christ. Let's go back to John 1, verse 14. At the start of the book, it sort of sets the course of what, what John is going to show us about Jesus. John 1, 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is Jesus. Jesus embodies the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. We, in Jesus, we see the fullness of God manifested. We see God's glory. We see his honor. We see his esteem. We see his perfection, his power, and his value. It's all embodied In the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And so to end the story, we see Jesus' end. He dies on the cross. And this is where it gets really ironic that when Jesus dies and suffers, he's glorified. That's the place where God is most glorified, is on the cross. So you see, this concept of glory is so huge. Because where the Lord of glory is crucified, that's where God is most glorified and made known. And he's seen to be valuable and perfect and holy and righteous. Because what happens there is the sin of our hearts, when we place glory on something else other than God, that's sin. When the sin of our hearts meets the justice of God, it results in the death of his son who's perfect and pure and righteous. And this is where God is most glorified. Because we see justice and mercy meet. And God is made known to be incredible. And this is amazing. We can see the grace of God. And this is where Jesus is glorified. So in the death of his son, sinners can be declared righteous. This is incredible. This is is God being glorified by being rejected in suffering. So can you see how the problem of suffering in this world and suffering in your life is satisfied by seeing the glory of God? Can you see that Jesus has left heaven, come down to earth, to suffer, die, and be rejected in our place for our sins? So whatever that you are going through, Jesus can sympathize sympathize with you. He's been through it. He's not abandoned you in your suffering. You can cling to him in your hard time. Because this sickness, like he says, this sickness is for God's glory. And so, in Jesus Christ, we can see the depth of love that he has for each one of us. That he's willing to suffer in our place. And this is love. This is the love that we'll see as the next theological concept. So we went through glory. Now we're going to see love. The love of Jesus. God's love is incredible. So let's look at verse 5. Verse 5, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And so I want, I want you to feel this. I want you to feel what's happening in this passage. It's love that caused Jesus to let Lazarus die. And so as we, as we see this love that Jesus has for his disciples and for this family and for you in this room, it's love that allowed Lazarus to, to die. And this is what these verses show. I mean, let's read it again. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus Yet when, and that can be translated as when, therefore, he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And so the two-day delay is motivated by Jesus' love for them. This is, this is another hard thing for us to understand. And I think what John wants his readers to see here and wants everyone to ask is, how is this love? Because if Jesus loved them, which it says he did, If Jesus loved them, he would go and heal them right away. Let's try and understand and unpack what this love is, because it is love. And he shows us what this love is. It's in verse 4 that the sickness will not end in death, but it's for God's glory, so that God's Son would be glorified in it. So, death is not the end of this sickness, it's for God's glory. So the sickness is going to be it's going to reveal the glory of God to this family, to the disciples and to all of us. It'll make Jesus look incredible. It's going to show his glory. And so this is the reason that that this is love. Because in this death Jesus is going to show Mary, Martha and Lazarus the glory of God. And so I think it's it's hard for us to hear because we we have like our culture totally misunderstanding what love is i mean it's very self-centered it's it's very emotionally based i mean if you watch a romantic comedy it's the same storyline over and over two people meet our friends they get to know each other they fall in love something happens where they might not fall in love and end up together but then they overcome it and they get together that's every romantic comedy how does, how does that impact us when we understand love? Because we're so ingrained with that in our culture and society. So the reason this is love is because, because it's going to show God's glory. So what is love? How are, Mar- are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus being shown love by Jesus? Well, to start, love will give us what we need most. And in the context of this story, Lazarus doesn't need physical healing as much as he needs spiritual healing and renewal. And love will give us what we need most. And what we need most is not temporary healing and temporary satisfaction, but it's eternal healing and eternal satisfaction. And so what we need most as human beings is to experience in full effect the glory of God. To see his beauty. Because this is what love will give us. Love will give us something eternal. And what's eternal? What's going to last forever? A clear revelation of God's glory. That's what, that's what our soul needs. That's what we all need. It's what Lazarus needed the most. And this is love. To be shown the glory of God. So let's look one more place. We'll look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, verse 10. It's on page 1209. 1 John 4, verse 10. It says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So do you see what this verse is showing us? We see, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. So we have love here. And the way that God loves us is by sending his son, Jesus, to die for our sins as as an atoning sacrifice. It connects love and glory all together. What we need most is to be shown this glory. The glory of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. This is what's most loving. This is what Jesus is about to show this family, that God is going to be glorified through this, through what's happening. And this is what we need most. We need the death of Jesus, because that's where God is glorified. And so you might be asking, okay, so he loved them, but why didn't, still, why didn't he go and heal them immediately? He could still go and heal them and still be for God's glory. And there's two reasons, his glory and your faith. And so let's praise God that he stayed where he was because this is where our faith is grown and our belief it, it, is, it is birthed in this. We can see the love of God in that he stayed. So we've seen God's glory, we've seen his love, and now we'll see belief. So belief, so the whole, this whole theology of waiting, sort of culminates in this belief. Because Mary and Martha are left to watch their brother die. And what can they hold on to? They can hold on to their belief in the work of God. That he will work. That he will be true. And this is a huge topic in the Gospel of John. Belief shows up 100 times in this one book. So let's look at verses 7 through 13. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? And so Jesus is ready to go see Lazarus, ready to go and heal him and all that. And what we see happening is the disciples' unbelief. They know what just happened in chapter 10. That Jesus made an unbelievable claim that he and the Father are one. And because of that, the Pharisees and scribes wanted to stone him and arrest him. And so they say, we're going to go back there where that's going to happen to you? Like, do you know what's going on? And we see more of their unbelief in verse 12 and 16. You know, we we can keep reading. Verses 12, it says, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Essentially what they're saying is, Lord, if he sleeps, we don't need to go. If he's asleep, he'll just wake up. It's no big deal. We see in in verse 16, we see Thomas saying, let us go also that we may die with him. It's like, yeah, that's sort of right, but not really at all. Like, Jesus is going to die, but you're not going to die with him. So you see the disciples' unbelief in this passage. The disciples don't want to go back. But what what happens is this in verse 9, if we look there. Verse 9, Jesus answers, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And so Jesus asks this rhetorical question. And what he's getting at there is he's essentially saying, Look, my time for working is not done. There's still hours of the daylight that, that I still need to do work. And so then he, he gives them this, this encouraging note for them to believe that his work is not finished. And then he offers this word to the disciples. He essentially says, look, I'm the light of the world. And you who walk by the light will not stumble if you believe in me. That's what he's saying in, this, in verse 9. Believe in me and you will be in the light. It gets more explicit in verses 14 and 15. Let's go there. It says, So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Lazarus is dead, and Jesus is glad. What? How? Why? The Greek there is Cairo, which means rejoice. It's very rare when Jesus rejoices in Scripture and he's rejoicing that he wasn't there when Lazarus died. What's going on here? Why would Jesus rejoice when his friend Lazarus died? And the key there is in verse 15. Two little words. So that you may believe. Jesus rejoices so that the disciples would believe that they would see the resurrection of Lazarus And believe in him. Because God is going to be glorified through this action. Jesus is going to look incredible. And so this is going to cause his disciples to believe on him. That they're going to see God's glory revealed when he resurrects Lazarus from the dead. Remember what our chief end is? The purpose of humanity. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is glorified Through our belief. When we we believe in Jesus, this is when we begin to glorify God. And this is where we begin to enjoy him forever. Because as we believe, it shows that God is most essential to us. It shows that God is most valuable to us. And so mankind is made to live under the, the lordship of Christ. And as we believe in Christ, we submit to his authority. We submit to the Lord God Almighty. And so how do we glorify God in what we do? We glorify him by believing. We glorify him by praising him, by honoring him, by making much of his grace. And we acknowledge his infinite worth and value. This is how we glorify God. And so one other piece to think about in this story is this. To Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, Jesus didn't show up. He Didn't show up. He abandoned them. But we know that Jesus did this in order to show his glory. So let that truth sink deep. That Jesus did this to show them his glory so that they would believe. So when it seems like God has abandoned you, he hasn't. When it seems like your life is just too messed up, he's, he's not abandoned you. He's with you. God is always working in your life. He's always working in your life. And so how do we know that we believe? How do we know that we're trusting in him? And the answer is simple. We love Christ. Do you love Christ? To love Jesus is to value him more than anything anything else on this earth. This is Christian conversion, that we love the Savior and want to live for his glory, that we want to follow him, that we want to obey him, that we want to proclaim him. This is God-glorifying belief. And so we live in this tension of waiting, and it's not easy, but we trust in God. And you know what's incredible to think? It's incredible to think that God is eternal, and he's outside of time, But he's present with you today, he was present with you yesterday, and he's present with you in the future. God is always with you, he's always working in your life. And the crazy thing thing is about this story, is that this is a picture of our death and our resurrection spiritually in Christ. Let's go down to verse 23. In 23, when Jesus finally comes to Martha and he says to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She doesn't understand what's happening. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So this, what's going on in this whole story is a picture for us. To cling to Jesus Christ as our resurrection in life, so that whatever happens, we know that our life comes from Jesus Christ. This is what this whole death is about that we would cling to Christ for our life, that we would honor him, that we would believe in him. Because in Christ there's life. And so, how do we wait? How do we wait? How do we go through the hard things that life brings? How do we wait? Our waiting should strengthen our faith. Our waiting should bring glory to God. Our waiting should show that Jesus is supreme in our hearts and supreme in our lives. lives. And so we wait with an active patience is what I'll call it. We're not passive. We're called to believe. There's action here going on. We're called to wait actively believing that Christ will be glorified in our situation, but we're to be patient and wait on his perfect timing. Don't you see in Scripture that that God waited to the perfect time to send Christ into human history? God is waiting to return and redeem humanity and make an end of all sin. God is waiting. We have a God who waited. How much more do we need to wait? And so we're called to actively wait. But we do that by trusting in him. We do that by living for his glory, by actively believing, by being patient in who he is. Because waiting on the Lord doesn't mean doing, it, doing nothing. It means you, you sh- strive to know him more. You strive to believe in him more. You know, God is our God. We let him be God. God. And so there's a couple examples in Scripture of, of men who are waiting on God. The first comes in Psalm 42. You don't need to turn there. But in Psalm 42, David is crying out to God because he's going through a trial and suffering. And he's thirsting for God. He's mourning. And this is what he says. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And so in light of his trials, in light of his suffering, in light of his waiting, he's putting his trust in God. He's hoping in God. And so while you're actively waiting on God, trust in him. Talk to him. Ask God to make him your highest treasure. Ask God to glorify his name in your life. Ask God to cause you to believe. And you wait in glad submission to God because he will work in your life. He always will. And so you might left be asking still, but what is God doing in my life? This trial is just too much. This burden is just too hard to bear. And you know, if God actually gave us all the reasons for why He does what He does, our finite minds couldn't understand it. And this is what Scripture says, Isaiah 55, eight and nine. It says, "My thoughts are not your thoughts." neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so what we need is really what little children need. We need to know that God loves us, that their parents, that your parents love you. That's what little children need the most, that their parents love them. They don't need to know why they do what they do, but they need to know that their parents love them. This is what we need with God. We need to know that God loves us and that he's working in our hearts and lives, that he's present with us, and he's trustworthy. He's good. He's glorious. And so we've seen that when trials come, we can cling to Christ because he'll be glorified, because he loves us so that we would believe. So the main point, again, is those who are loved by Jesus will wait for the glory of God to be revealed by believing in God. So just to conclude this, give the story of Horatio Spafford. He was a man who knew many trials. In 1869, in the Great Chicago Fire, his son of four died. Two years later, in 1871, his wife and his four daughters were traveling to England to meet uh, D.L. Moody, his friend. He waited in Chicago because of business. And as they were going over, the, the ship sunk. And his four daughters and over 200 others died. And his wife, when she got to England, telegrammed back that said, Saved alone. And so immediately he got in a boat and went across to England. And as he was over the place of his daughter's death, he penned this hymn, and he was a man that knew that God is glorified in all things, and he believed in God's goodness. And this is what he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood For my soul, my sin, O the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. And Lord, for thy coming, we wait. Amen.